This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Dr. Alex Lescu. The lecturer at the University of Canberra discusses the sporting culture within Australia, the different developmental pathways within the country, and how this can be particularly challenging for girls, as well as the blended approach of constraint-based coaching. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Alex, listen, really appreciate you jumping on. As I said, bit of a morning, evening deal going off, off for us today. <laughs> but um, yeah, really appreciate you spending a bit of your, I guess, Tuesday evening with me and with us. Um, how are things your end? All okay? Yeah, doing really great. Yeah, aside from the uh, cold in Canberra, I can't complain. <laughs> Perfect. So for people that maybe don't know you or haven't come across your work, etc., do you just want to explain a little bit about yourself, what you do now and how you've got to that point? Yeah, absolutely. So I started like every other athlete. I did an exercise science degree thinking that I was going to work in sport for the rest of my life. Um, but I knew that wasn't essentially viable. So I actually paired it with a psychology degree. Now, I didn't realize how long it would take to become a sports psychologist. Um, and so instead, I graduated with both degrees and a research question that I didn't think we'd ever answer, which was essentially whether or not girls should play boys cricket or not, because they're both quite big here at the moment. Um, so I managed to land myself a PhD scholarship. I went straight from an undergrad into a PhD um, and I was lucky enough to, to complete that this year at the start of this year um, and found some really interesting like research findings um, but that hasn't stopped me from coaching and I now lecture at the University of Canberra in sports psychology. So I would consider myself a skill acquisition specialist I essentially just help people learn new things and we do that through an evidence-based way, especially in sport. Um, and I'm a big advocate that every person has a talent um, and we're just not very good at unlocking it in everybody at the moment. Perfect. So I think a nice point to start in this is what's the culture of sport within Australia? Because um, I imagine, you know, in England, every region has a different idea of how sports played or different, you know, history of how sports played. So culturally, it's going to be very different from England to France or France to Germany. Mm -hmm. And I imagine Australia would be the same. So from a sporting context, what is the, you know, Australian culture of sport? Yeah, it's, um, it's very competitive and dare I say elitist. It's very much that um, elite athletes are held in very, very high regard here. So if you have done something in sport at any stage in your life, unless you have been an elite athlete, you're not really held at the same echelon as everyone else. So we have an issue with coaching at the moment where a lot of um, players finish up their playing careers and then they convert directly into coaching, sometimes without any professional development like the rest of us would complete or they get certificates that are sort of awarded to them honorarily rather than actually completing a lot of the work. And so it's very flooded with elite athletes. And so kids will watch TV and they'll spend a lot of time at, like, at trying to be this elite athlete. And so we're not very good at sort of promoting the everyday athlete. They're just, I'm going to play sport for the rest of my life because it makes me feel good and keeps me active. And so there's a slow push that given um, the rise in health issues and things like that with a sedentary lifestyle and we've gotten very good at sort of social sport but again like that's very like tightly connected to like a drinking culture in Australia as well so if you don't particularly enjoy drinking and sport at the same time then social sport isn't quite that accessible either so it's just very awkward divide between being the absolute best you can be compared to everybody else rather than being like the best version of yourself within a sport that you enjoy and someone who's just kind of doing it for fun and to keep themselves busy so in the junior aspect like we put a lot of emphasis on talent pathways and whether or not you have or haven't made it yet into a pathway so I dealt with a lot of like 15, 16 year old boys who are giving themselves anxiety over whether or not they're about to be picked in this talent pathway because they know that if they don't get picked at 15 or 16, they will never get a look in again. And as an organization that would terrify me if that's what my athletes thought that I would just 
absolutely ignore their existence regardless of what they do and how they do it that just because they've they've aged out of the pathway system they'd never be considered again but it's very common in a lot of the sports that dominate our landscape which is especially like your crickets and your footballs and in terms of a pathway what you know what age groups are we talking around um what what ages do these type of pathways start what's the initial over here it's called grassroots but what's the grassroots provision Mm. that's provided for people say cricket for example what's the grassroots provisions that's provided and then what would be I guess a normal step-by-step progression through to someone who's then maybe making it into a a first team somewhere if you wanted to go down that route. Yeah, so I actually just recently studied this as part of my PhD. And so for the average like female cricketer, you'd probably start playing your local club cricket, which is your grassroots cricket, about eight to 10 years old, um, just as you're starting to get to the end of primary school. And, and all your friends usually sign up at the same time. And you just find the, the nearest place to sign up and you play your cricket there. From about 10 to 12, you start to get the people who mature quite early and start to get much better than other people at the sport. And so under 12s is actually the first time that you can get picked at a, as a representative side. And because our regions are so big here, within a city, say Brisbane, where I grew up, you would have multiple ability like multiple teams that you can pick from multiple regions that you could trial for and they're all within this really condensed area so Brisbane alone had eight different regional teams that you could trial for you would then go and play in a competition throughout Queensland that would bring about 15 or 16 teams together and that's just for a 12 year old cricketer like this is You look at it now and you think, this was really intense. Did I really enjoy this as a 12-year-old? Like, this is what everybody wanted to do. And so from under 12s is under 15s is the next step. Um, And that becomes far more structured. So you have more like T20 and one-day matches. It's expected that you play a bit more mature in cricket. You are playing along innings rather than just going and seeing how far you can hit the ball. Um, You're making decisions. The captains actually are allowed to captain the game rather than coaches giving instructions and you probably travel alone without parents probably for the first time as well so it's a very different environment and incredibly dependent on who you know the impression you make at the actual trial itself and of course the statistics that you have within the season so people really start to worry about whether or not their strike rate is high enough whether or not they're taking enough wickets when realistically them playing a sport an organized sport at 15 is just good for them (laughs) that's the fundamental thing it's supposed to be healthy and good for you so from under 15s you get to under 18s and now both of these age groups start to have state representative levels as well so you go to your regional carnival you play everybody else within the state we have states instead of counties here and so Brisbane is situated in Queensland and the Queensland team would then go and play the other states within Australia in a big national tournament these are you know sometimes they're even like televised or at least live streamed you're very exposed as an athlete to this completely new and highly competitive environment you're traveling interstate which for a lot of people is the first time they've ever done so and you're held in very high regard after that and so by the time you get to 18 and you've played in a lot of these teams you start to think you're pretty good at this And then after 18, they stop picking teams like that. The junior pathway just kind of runs out. And so you get shipped off back to normal cricket, like everybody else, with all of the adult open-aged people in your area. And it's up to you to sort of keep making an impression, unless by some chance you've been given a state contract up until the point where you're 18 years old. So it kind of branches off from 18. You're either given a state contract and you keep training and you stay within that team and end up playing, you know, first class cricket, like Sheffield Shield level cricket, or you turn 18, you kind of quit sport or at least sign up for your local club, maybe realize that nobody really cares. It's not quite competitive. The first 11 team can be very randomly picked by whoever is available that day rather than who is the best team to field. And this different environment can turn a lot of people off cricket, especially because it's not what they're used to. They're used to training very like specifically and being told what to do. And now you're sort of just left to your own devices and no one really tells you what you're supposed to be working on anymore. And that self-directed learning isn't something they're really prepared for. So you're either a prodigy at 18 or you're lucky to play, you know, three or four matches for first grade before you realize this is not quite the same. And whether or not they even stick with cricket is a big issue at the moment 
our schoolboys cricket here is incredibly competitive and worth scholarships. So schools will vie for different cricketers just to make sure that they're in their school team. And then after that, they're sort of kicked to the curb. See you later. Don't remember who you are anymore. And and now that they miss being important or being like somebody wanted them to be in their team. And so a lot of them just ne- never play cricket again after school. Okay, and in terms of the the background along that, so you obviously mentioned that's kind of a leap pathway. Is there still participation pathways alongside mm-hmm. that? Um, and how much emphasis is played on that kind of particip- participation pathway be- uh, alongside that structure? Yeah, the, every age group will still have a participation arm where you can just sort of play with your friends in a team in a structured environment so that you can go and play different games every week. Um, every state will have some sort of version of that slightly different um, and they've actually introduced two sort of different pathways for that. So if you prefer the long form of cricket or 50 over matches, um, you can actually play in a competition where they will organize those for you. So your games are predominantly longer form, makes for a little bit a bigger day. So a bigger commitment on a Saturday, which not everybody wants to do. Um, And so that's predominantly on a Saturday morning. It's quite hot on a Saturday um, and it's for the people who are almost like diehard cricket fans or really enjoy the game as it is. They also recently introduced a T20 version. So essentially you can sign up and play T20s on a Wednesday night or a Friday night or a Sunday afternoon where it's a little bit less structured and definitely less of a time commitment and less traditional version of cricket to try and get people who weren't appealed by the 50 over matches and a full day Saturday to still try and come along and play the game for what it is because it brings such a benefit to be involved. And so Cricket Australia has been really good at sort of developing simultaneous like pathways depending on how you feel like you want to interact with the game to try and make it a little bit more accessible for every person who kind of looks at cricket and goes I could give that a go like that seems like a fun thing to do on a weekend but not my entire weekend and as someone who played cricket from like you know nine o'clock on a Saturday morning to six o'clock on a Sunday night for most of my like junior years I can totally relate to not wanting to do that (laughs) and then in terms of um the the I guess the culture around clubs um what does that look like so if I give you an example when I've been out to Holland previously I've been really impressed with the setups they have around the local team and what they'll have is like the first team pitch here and then you know four or five astroturfs around the outside of it and they go there and there's barbecues uh going on and you know the the kids will play in the morning and they'll stay and watch the older ones in the afternoon and it seems like it's very ingrained in terms of like a family feel of your dad might be playing in the afternoon but the kid's gonna go and play football with his mates and stuff so in terms of like maybe a informal option or informal learning that can go on with your friends in that environment um again from the outside that seems really positive and maybe something we don't have so much in in England it seems like kind of it more in England as your first team plays and then everyone comes and then everyone goes and that's kind of where it is what does that feel or culture look like in a in a I guess traditional Australian club yeah, definitely closer to England than it is Holland. I mean, it sounds pretty incredible to have barbecues going and, and things like that. And um, there's definitely less sort of like age differences in interactions around clubs. So they're trying to push our version of like first 11 cricket within a club as something that is marketable. And so people would go down and watch the games. And that's never really happened before because there's not much to see. Like anyone who is of worth note, is actually already playing at an elite level. And so you can watch them on TV when they're in the big bash. You're not going to go to their you know, local Saturday game and watch them not bowl because they're not allowed to. Like, it's not as exciting. And so they find it quite difficult, difficult to market. But people still go along. Like, if your game finishes early and the first 11s are still going, then you will sit there and watch because they are a class above in some cases or there's at least one or two players that you're really curious to see how they go. Um, Some clubs are better than others at trying to get that sort of generation of just people down and having a go 
and actually watching the rest of the club. Like there's an investment in the whole club mentality of supporting your team versus another team. Um, some clubs are very aggressive at it and like to you know, heckle from the sidelines. And other clubs just want their junior kids to come down on their way home, have a look at the game and then continue on their way. So I would love uh, the perfect environment would be when, you know, you, you go to a training session and you have your, your under 10 under 15s and first 11 sort of training in the same general area and a lot of the times it's shared synthetic nets or at least just like one synthetic pitch in the middle of a field and there's usually kids all crowded around it um to be able to walk around between the different environments and feel welcome like to to be a 15 year old who saw someone hit a 50 on the weekend and be like whoa how did you do that like What's your thought process around an innings like that? But then the 10-year-olds also come to the under-15s. Maybe they have a sibling in that team and still feel welcome in that environment. I feel we're very isolated within our age groups and within our teams. And that's slowly changing now that we have a, our pathway system is sort of moving away from age ranges. So it's not necessarily going to be your under 10s anymore. It's now stage one. So the first time that you started playing cricket and that can range from like eight to 12 years old. And so that kind of shared peer learning across age groups has been really useful for people who are picking up cricket for the first time. And maybe your eight-year-old has five years experience because they've been playing in the backyard and they already know how to bowl a ball and, and they can help the 12 year old who's never even held a, a cricket ball in their hand before and, and things that you can't really sort of predict in a training environment um, that sort of just happen organically between kids. So some, again, some clubs really good at it and it's a almost an environmental architecture thing. Like our nets at my local club, we had turf nets at one end, synthetic nets at the other and this beautiful green space in the middle and then your main oval and so you usually have like your first 11 are doing their fitness warm-up around the oval you've got a under 10s team actually using the field in the middle as just like a, a place to run around and play after their training sessions you got people doing throwdowns in the synthetics people bowling in the main nets and you could have someone bowling you know 120 kilometers an hour comfortably at one end and some little kid who's learning to throw the ball the first time and the contrast is just amazing and so we were lucky that that was a very welcome environment, but definitely not the case with all clubs across the board because it's so competitive that you just essentially want the best from your best. And, and some people get left behind as a result and some people are okay with that. I'm not, but it's a slow process to change. And can you talk a little bit more about that stage uh, stages that they made a shift towards? Because I think that's a really interesting concept from what you said there. Yeah, it, it took a bit of time, but we essentially have a stages, not ages approach. So I did speak about our representative teams as like an age-based progression, um, but within our participation um, level, it's kind of changing so that you have a stage-based approach. And it's based on the experience that you've had within cricket. So if you've never played cricket before and you're about up to 12 years old, I think is the cap purely because of like maturation and how tall and how fast you would be. Um, then you'd enter a stage one competition and that could be with anybody within that same experience level or, or rough age range. And the idea is that their games are quite quick and they have different rules. So like you have to, rather than if you're out, you're out, you lose runs, you retire at a certain number of balls and it's very constraints based so that everybody gets um, a good bowling opportunity, a good batting opportunity and opportunities in the field as well. And so the idea is just that you're enjoying your first experience of cricket so that when it becomes quite structured and much longer, you have the foundation of skill to put the ball on the pitch so that you can also hit the ball in the next innings as well. If you don't have the ability to bowl the ball onto the pitch, then kids in surveys just said that they don't enjoy the game because they can't even, the fun part's scoring runs. Like you want to hit the ball as far as you can. It's the fun part. And so if the bowler can't put the ball where they can hit it, they became really frustrated with that and the research that built the staged approach. So your stage two then moves to people who are more comfortable playing like a full 20 over match. Um, you're probably a little bit older, so about 12 to 15 or 16 years old. And some people might actually just stay in stage two or the very low divisions of stage three throughout their schooling career. And that's perfectly fine. That's exactly who it's designed for. And you'll still have your division one stage three, which is essentially your school first 11. Um, but even if you don't ever make that team, you shouldn't feel disadvantaged at all because you still have access to a very quality competition. And everybody is at a similar skill range so that you can still excel if you do well 
and you have the opportunity to sort of skip stages if you become too skilled for that particular level. Um, but they do encourage that you're not unevenly matched, that you're going to a game on the weekend, you're losing by 150 runs, you're getting bowled out for, you know, less than 50 runs a game and you're just sort of feeling bad about yourself and your experience with cricket. Um, so the idea is just sort of even the playing field a little bit by allowing people to self-select where they think they are, at least coaches, to determine whether or not you would suit that stage. Um, even after a couple of games, you're more than happy to sort of swap stages just to make sure that you're getting what you want out of cricket the most um, and also making sure that there's nobody who's really dominating and sort of ruining some kids' weekend because they're way too good compared to everybody else. And. Um from a social perspective how does it work with uh individuals maybe playing with children that are younger than them or their one of their friends being in stage two and they're still in stage one mm. has there been any i guess evidence of that being a positive or negative in either way i so that it's only been recently implemented we're probably only a couple of years in now and it's the first time this year was the first time i've actually coached within some of the lower stages. Um, and so within our um, under 10s girls team that I coached, it was some of the first time they'd ever played structured cricket. And so we had girls who are, you know, year seven or level seven compared to, you know, literal five, six-year-olds who are in grades two or grade three and they're in the same competition. And so it did, they did feel out of place to start with. And that was really difficult because if you're bowling to a, a six-year-old, uh, they're so much smaller than you they're less mature if you hit them they cry like there's just so much going on and so for them it was about okay how can I get my skills up as fast as possible to get out of this stage so I don't want to play six-year-olds again and then there'd be the weeks where you'd have a team that are full of 12-year-olds but not particularly skilled and just really tall and so having the conversation with the six-year-olds to be like look I know it looks scary. They look so much bigger than you, but they wouldn't be in the stage if you weren't at the same skill level. So I want you to forget that they're giants for, you know, the second while you're about to walk out there and just treat it as like, I'm going to bowl the ball here because I want to. What they do with it, that is completely up to them. They are not going to tell you what to do. And so you're not going to tell them what to do either. Just bowl the ball, field it when they hit it. That's all we have to worry about. And at, by the end of the season, they got there and stopped being sort of intimidated by the physical size of some of the girls. But it did take a little while to adjust, especially within a training session as a coach. Like I'm very well versed in constraints-based learning and how to adjust challenges for people that makes it look like everyone is doing the same task, but everyone has that little challenge point that is just specially there. So they're doing a different challenge, but everyone's doing the same task. For somebody who walks in as a, a parent who probably hasn't done any professional coach education and it has to deal with a six-year-old and a 12-year-old doing the exact same activity and both of them are bored that would be so intimidating in itself so definitely has its pitfalls and I think it will probably level out over time um, it's not designed for the 12-year-old who wants to start playing cricket for the first time I think it's definitely more targeted the like six seven eight-year-olds who probably aren't ready for real cricket yet and need that sort of foundation experience first just so they have the skills that they need to succeed or at least to survive in the system without feeling like they're bringing anybody down in their team um, but for yeah the 12-year-olds I think it's also part and parcel of the region that we're in. I'm now based in Canberra and we don't have a stage two girls competition because there just aren't enough girls playing cricket. And so for them, it was like, how can I demonstrate that there should be a stage two girls because I want to keep playing cricket. And that was their objective the whole time to do well enough to sort of advocate for themselves. And that's not something a lot of kids will ever have to do. And, and hopefully less kids will have to do in the future as well. So picking up on something you said there around wanting to progress enough to kind of be able to make that jump if you like how are the skills uh, judged is it objective or is it like subjective is there data sets that you have to hit or what does that look like completely subjective 
And so it does, I don't think it would be we'd ever get to a stage where we have specified characteristics just because like cricket is such a, a messy, chaotic sport that just because you would meet that characteristic doesn't mean you would fit and it doesn't mean you would fit if you don't meet that characteristic. So it's not necessarily based on whether you can bowl fast enough or you know, score enough runs or bat for a period of time. It's more about your ability to play the game. And so by stage one, you're probably learning to catch, to throw, to bowl for the first time. You have some sort of eye-hand coordination um, that you've picked up in your experiences as a kid. Most kids can hold a bat, but they maybe can't direct the ball between like, you know, your onside and your offside. And so that's completely expected at stage one because cricket is a very structured sport and the skills need to be developed in that sort of environment for them to be able to swing a bat. Contacting the ball is usually perfectly fine after a little bit and so if if you entered stage two with only that foundational skill level it makes for a very slow disjointed very messy game whereas the goal is by that stage you've probably played stage one for a couple of years you've developed your skill set and so by the time you get to stage two which is about 12 years old you're probably landing the ball on the pitch roughly four out of six or at least five out of six times you're maybe gaining a little bit of pace or you're bowling with a bit more intent than just landing the ball on the pitch. You're maybe starting to take wickets or to think about, okay, if I bowl the ball here, the batter might want to hit it here. I'm going to set my field in this particular way. And so I developed some of that more critical thinking and also like the games-based knowledge that you would have from being in that environment over and over again that you get with the experience of playing the game. By stage three, if you've played for that long, a lot of kids will drop out before stage three, which is a common problem across junior sports. But if they do get to stage three, by now they're sort of 16, 17. It's definitely a more structured version of the game and you're more athletic. Like you, you've developed, a lot of people have reached their full maturity by that stage, especially girls. And so they're starting to really compete with each other and push each other and, and the peer competition becomes really strong but also welcoming because it's nice to be able to do something better than you were at it before. And that stage three is the perfect stage to be like, okay, well, I'm not just going to bowl the ball on the pitch. I'm going to try and get three wickets today, or I'm going out there and I'm going to build an innings. I'm going to bat for a certain amount of runs or at least to get my team in a better position. And that thought process is very different to what you'd experience in stage one or two, because you've spent so many times in the sport. Now the mechanics of the game aren't as intimidating are almost familiar and you can start to manipulate them to benefit you or at least your team uh, rather than just learning how to play the game. And so I don't think we'd ever get to the stage or want to get to the stage where we say, you know, you're not allowed to progress until you have five out of six balls on the pitch because there are professional cricketers out there who still bowl two wides on average per over. So that is an unfair characteristic. Um, but you also have kids who are maybe very well suited to the game. They're they have a really comfortable run in when they bowl or, or they found a batting solution that works for them. And I say batting solution because I, I don't want to rule out techniques in any way. Like we're all going to bat very differently. And so just because it doesn't meet sort of the standardized criteria doesn't mean that you should ever be kept from progressing to a next stage. The only time you would potentially skip a stage or maybe not spend too much time in it is if you have been receiving like a, um, if you've been picked up in a talent pathway and you're struggling to be competitive within your environment because you're like more skilled than the rest of the group. And so you'll find there are often sort of 15 year olds who could play either or they could play in a stage two and be quite comfortable because they're well suited with their peers. And some 15 year olds have just picked up the game really well or see the game completely differently and, you know, could comfortably score a hundred every game or bowl way too fast for everybody else. And in those circumstances, I think the average 16, 17 year old will very much welcome that 15 year old into their team if they could be competitive enough to hold their ground. And I'm yet to see a team that's sort of tried to reject the younger player because they don't think they belong in that team because it was such a like gradual progression into this staged approach. Normally you just have 15 year olds playing under 17s and if you're good enough, no one would question it. But if anything, it's more welcome now to be like, this is the best team that we can build. Um, bring us anyone who can actually play cricket and put us together in the same stage as long as you can. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And yeah, I agree. In my experience, if um, if the older players feel like the younger players can add something to their team and that normally they're very welcoming at that point. So it's interesting that's the same case. So looking at it from... Um, I guess a 
environmental point of view you mentioned at the start around uh, your recent research around girls participating in boys sport um, and what that looks like so it's the euros over here for soccer or football as we call mm -hmm. it um, and there's a, a, an ever ongoing debate on what you know provision should look like for the younger age groups sometimes i'm out of tournaments at the moment i see a lot of girls playing in the the boys competition which is great i also see more and more girls teams and having their own tournament which is also brilliant as well so i guess from your research and the researchers out there what uh, pathway is the suggested pathway and what positives negatives does that come with and what what are your experiences in that space yeah, so I, um, I actually didn't get to answer that question as part of the PhD um, because nobody's ever asked it before, which is a nice problem to have in research. But essentially, yeah, we went in thinking, okay, we'll measure the differences essentially between the two pathways as I've seen them as a coach and then potentially look at, you know, what is it about those different pathways that fosters a different development experience for a talented athlete or someone who's considered to be talented. And so when he realized that nobody had ever asked cricketers in particular I don't think there's any research out there on female talent development specifically like you know what did you do what was your experience what was your pathway and so for cricket we had to start very specific I had to go back to all the elite players that we could find and be like okay what was your first interaction with cricket <coughs> sorry um did you play backyard cricket? Like, What is your earliest memory? And then sort of where did you go from there? What did your pathway look like? And so for a lot of them, it was, I played with my brother. I wanted to beat him. And so I became really skilled because I wanted to be the best cricketer in the family or, you know, little stories like that that are usually bound from a family engagement in cricket. Or a really positive experience in the backyard. I even had grandparents who would give throwdowns, which I thought was incredible. And so from there, a lot of them would speak about, okay, they got to under 12s and it's sort of questioned why a girl is playing in a boys team after under 12s because you're sort of like roughly the same height or at least very similarly skilled physically at that age. And it's not until you hit puberty that things start to look a bit different. And so the boys start to bowl a lot faster by 14, 15. And so even at that stage, a lot of people will push through that um, and they won't really see it as heckling or abuse until they reflect afterwards to be like, wow, that was really hard. Like just rocking up on a weekend and being in a team that usually doesn't question it. Like it's not the team itself or that environment that's like, I don't want this girl to play in my team. It's usually other parents who think that that girl is taking their, their child's spot in the team, which is usually never the case. It's a, a misconception at best. And so that only gets more volatile if you continue to play. So under 18s or under 17s, it's it's you know a difficult topic to broach at school. Like it's usually a point of bullying for a lot of the players to be like, why are you playing in a boys team if they have girls teams out there? Um, but it's also seen as their best chance for a quality development environment. So they see it as like the boys, the gold standard of cricket at the moment. I want to be that good. Not, I want to be a good female cricketer. I want to be the best cricketer I can be. And I think that comes from being in that environment, not the all-female environment for now. And that's because a lot of the players who are elite now, usually going through the pathway about you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And for a lot of them, even 20 years ago, there was a girl's pathway. I have people who've just recently retired from elite cricket and think, well, I had to fight tooth and nail to play D grade in my dad's team because they were appalled that a girl wanted to play cricket until I bowled them. So a lot of them have experiences where they've had to prove themselves over and over again in these all-male environments because they knew that that was going to be the best development from them. And they saw it as this like, if it's tough, it's good for me and I'll just sort of deal with it later. Like that, yeah, maybe I won't feel good about it, but at least I know that I'm doing the best I can for myself to get to become a better cricketer. And so we never got to the stage where we could ask them what it was about that male cricket environment that they thought was better for them because a lot of them hadn't been through the all-female pathway at all or they'd get to under 12s and be told you should go a trial for this you know Queensland team and they're like what team 
I just thought I was going to play with the boys for the rest of my life. And then they realized that we have an Australian women's cricket team. They're like, oh, that team, that sounds cool. I might try that. <laughs> and it's very different now that there's so much televised sport and they're very visible. But, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I didn't even know there was a team until someone gave me a poster one day. I was like, oh, this is, there's a women's team that plays cricket for Australia. I didn't know that. So it's a very different experience for a lot of the girls and they thought it was necessary so now we have this beautiful problem where it's like do I now put my daughter into this very volatile often very tough environment when they play all male cricket because there's this conception that there's it's better for you because it's more competitive or do you play an all girls cricket because you get to play with your peers you get the social aspect and you also get to develop with everybody else your age and when I started the PhD four years ago, it was because I heard a girl get abused from the sidelines in an all-female cricket match from a parent because she had travelled three hours to play in this all-girls competition. There were very few of them at the time. And it was based around participation. So they wanted as many girls playing cricket as possible. She was way too good for them absolutely brilliant compared to people who are struggling to bowl the ball and she hit this beautiful six back over the bowler and the bowler looked like she was about to cry and her parent yelled from the sideline stop hitting the ball so hard it's unfair for everybody else and I sat there as a coach going no hit the ball as hard as you want but don't you ever stop hitting the ball hard just because you're better than everybody else I've never heard that yelled at my brother who was, you know, six foot at 12 years old and had to carry his birth certificate around every time he played an underage team. Like, why would you say that? And so that really ticked me off. And that's the only reason I got into research was, you know, to prove this parent wrong, that it doesn't matter what competition you play. And I still don't have an answer for them, but I will one day. So even in an environment like that, if you are too skilled, it's considered bad. And if you want to become better and you're too competitive compared to your peers, that's also seen as a bad thing in all-female cricket for now because a lot of people just play all-female cricket to be with their friends and play a sport together, and that sport just happens to be cricket. It's slowly getting better in terms of pathway teams, which are really competitive and sort of instill a bit more like you will become the best player that you can be within this pathway, and that's perfectly fine. But no, not everybody has access to that very specialised talent pathway, and it's selected on arbitrary meetings and coach gut feeling a lot of the time. And so whether or not you ever get to be in an environment where you feel empowered to become a better cricketer with an all-female team is purely chance at this point because there is just no development system that is useful to the wider population. It's only very specifically the pathway you've been inducted in. And so I hope we do get to the day where you show up to your local cricket field and you do feel like you're getting the best out of yourself, that even if you never become an elite athlete, you'll at least know that you have reached your potential. Um, and I think we're a long way off that purely because we don't know what it is that makes a good talent development environment yet. We have a general idea of what training should look like. I've even developed like a scale on how to make training a bit better so that clubs hopefully train their athletes to become more skilled or at least become better at what they want to become better at. But we still don't have an answer for whether girls or boys cricket is a better environment because we just haven't learned how to measure what those environments look and feel like and then go back and ask the players whether or not they think that's why they enjoyed slash suffered through their experiences to get to the point where they are now. I do think, though, at this stage, you can absolutely play all-female cricket and become elite. Um, and in regional areas, because there's very limited all-female cricket, there is absolutely nothing wrong with playing in the boys' system as long as you can survive and just seeing how you go from there. Because they do become a bit more like aggressive or cutthroat athletes because that's the sort of environment that they've been exposed to. It is absolutely okay to be very good at something. And I feel like Australia has this, like, tall poppy syndrome where if you're too good at something you can sit down now stop making a big deal of yourself and you don't really get that in the country if anything they're super proud of being good at something and being better than other people at something and so that's a bit of a contrast when you you move to the cities and you realize oh not everybody is very stoked about being good at something like if anything they're trying to be you know quite um humble about it so that they don't draw too much attention to themselves so so yeah very different sort of experience and I think there's no 
wrong experience yet. I think it's more just about like what you're willing to endure and the fact that you shouldn't have to endure something to find your best version of yourself as an athlete. Like it shouldn't be something that you suffer through. It should be something that you quite enjoy. I think it's interesting what you're saying there around the um the obviously social side compared to the elitist side and imagine from what you said here and my experiences in in the UK as well is that there's lots of pathways for people that want to push to be professional footballers or professional uh, rugby players or cricket players or whatever particularly in the boys side and if you're Mm -hmm. a girl who wants that that's their aspiration is to play for the women's football team or women's cricket team maybe playing in an environment that you said there where it is more social and the focus on actually I just want to be able to turn up my friends and play might not challenge them as much as they would like at that mm-hmm. moment in time so there's probably a balancing act between being in all girls cricket so you do get social integration all that type of stuff compared to actually being in an environment where it is a little bit more cutthroat and competitive because that's going to make me want to hone my skills or put my skills under pressure in stressful times for me. And then hopefully that allows me to pursue the goal that maybe I have rightly or wrongly, that this is what I want to do and this is what I want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good way to describe it as well. Just this, you know, there you can absolutely just play sport because you feel like a social interaction is good for you and you want to be able to move your body and cricket just happens to be that vessel that's absolutely fine and I'm not saying we shouldn't have those opportunities for people if anything they should be more integrated so it's not seen as a bad thing that you only want to play social sport it's you know a representation of where you are in your life and and social sport is the one thing that makes you happy then so be it but I do think it's not fair to then expect athletes who do want the best out of themselves to then have to go through only that environment to demonstrate their ability and not feel like there is somebody there to make them better or at least help them unlock what their potential is if you're going to a you know environment and you've just hit 100 on the weekend and they're teaching somebody how to bat for the first time in the exact same training environment then I can understand why you feel a little like underprivileged in that scenario and a lot of people will probably spend a lot of their time being like that because they've learned far more from their unstructured play environments than they have from a coach and that's becoming way less common now because we're probably not spending as much time in unstructured play Um, but you do you shouldn't have to rely only on a all-female social-based pathway or participation-based pathway to be your talent development environment. I feel like there should be something else there that is going to benefit you and also benefit the people who don't have to be subjected to your excellent skill set every weekend because uh, getting hit for six sucks. And I totally understand why that bowler wanted to cry. But if anything, it's a really good showcase as to why we need both and why it should be perfectly sustainable to do both as a pathway because there's obviously a need for it perfect so coming on to the environmental side obviously you mentioned a little bit around the talent development skill development etc um so as you mentioned some of the research you've done around that what i guess evidence is there currently around what is you know first class athlete development or skill development techniques and where is that come from what has it historically been like and yeah what space are we moving towards yeah so the way we describe a talent development environment essentially it has three key elements it should be non-linear it should have really good quality training design and it should have a supported pathway and so essentially non-linear just means that you are not going to learn something and get exponentially better as you get older there's no guarantee that your learning will be a direct line and this is a pretty common construct nowadays is that learning is not direct but rather we sort of chop and change and we learn something and then we sort of regress a little bit and then we get a little better and so this non-linearity of learning is something that we should be including in a lot of our talent development environments And that looks like, you know, maybe you are really good at 12 years old and then hit puberty and then you really struggle because your body has changed. Everything is different. Like you have a billion thoughts happening at once that you've never had to deal with before. And now you're trying to still become an elite athlete. 
because you didn't play at an elite level in under 15s, that shouldn't mean that you're not considered later on because you have demonstrated elite performance as you get older and you've sort of mastered your body and you become a, a well-rounded athlete. I think a lot of people are very scared that if they don't sort of make it at that 15 level, like I said before, that they will never get considered again. And a good talent development environment would mean that they're not worried about that because they know that they could get picked up at any stage if they've met the sort of criteria of what makes them elite. We also don't know what that criteria is. And that was probably one of the saddest things that came out of my research when you ask like coaches and managers, you know, what do you look for as a, in a talented athlete? And a lot of people said gut feeling, which is very terrifying. So even just knowing what an elite athlete is makes it very difficult to have a nonlinear pathway because now you don't know what you need to be to sort of make it at that level again, because there is no sort of defined criteria of, of when you've made it. Um, the second one is training design. And that was a key one because um, the way that we've traditionally coached cricket is very sort of like a dictatorship. I think we, we've moved towards movie director now. Um, essentially, you have one person who has all this knowledge as a coach. It is their job to then impart that knowledge onto you um, by giving you extensive instructions, maybe even taking the bat off you and showing you how to hold it, or maybe even taking your arm and showing you how to swing it. And so that sort of level of learning now has been shown repeatedly in research to not be incredibly helpful at developing the skills yourself because you're sort of just modeling somebody else. You're literally just taking someone else's version of events and trying to internalize it as your own. And maybe you start to realize that we don't all bowl as fast as Jimmy Anderson because we're not all as tall as Jimmy Anderson. And that, that's perfectly fine. It is also not the only reason he bowls quickly but it is one of the contributing factors and so this idea that you should take every child and make him look at the biomechanical analysis of his bowling technique and be like do that is it doesn't even pass those sort of bar test as a good idea for coaching it would not fly in a pub if you tried to explain it like that but it's totally what we do and so we've sort of moved away from that traditional approach of just telling people what to do and how to do it so sort of setting up an environment with tasks that they have to solve or at least problems that they have to solve that would happen in a game and they're sort of working it out as they go. So rather if you take the, the batting example, if you've never held a bat before or you, you think that they're holding it wrong, then the best way to sort of rectify that is to give them a scenario where they can't solve the problem with their current movement solution. So any player who has a very dominant bottom hand in cricket, they'll usually hit the ball in one way and sort of slap the ball almost like a tennis forehand. And that will usually be their only solution to every problem. Every time the ball comes to them, it will all go in that direction and it'll go in the exact same way. And so to encourage them to try a new version of batting or at least a new shot to play, you need to come up with a scenario where that is the best solution for them and this solution starts to fail. And so if you want to hit them, like hit a cover drive for the first time, so a very different sort of mechanics to get the ball in the opposite direction, then we try to use things to convince them that that's a good idea or at least the goal of the task. And they need to reorganize themselves into a way that they can actually make that a reality. And sometimes it's difficult because you have to reward you know, you know, bad behaviors. And like, if they sort of work out a way to hit it later and slice it through there, technically they're right. Um, but the goal is to essentially get them to take something that they're familiar with and sort of rearrange it into something that they're unfamiliar with so that they do find a new solution to that problem. It's a very more like coach complicated approach to coaching. Like you definitely have to think about how people move, how people learn, like what is the best way to support an athlete and what is it that would best support their development as they continue to become more skilled. But it's definitely less like talking, direct instructions, yelling, or even just sort of telling people what to do because everybody is going to find their own unique movement solution. And Steve Stiffs is a perfect example of that in terms of batting. If you tried to teach everybody to bat like Steve Smith, that would be a terrible idea. But if you tried to unteach Steve Smith, that's also a terrible idea. And so if anything, we have some really good examples of that in elite sport at the moment where people have been allowed to thrive. And their only passing factor is that as long as it doesn't cause you pain or injury, and it gets the solution that you want, 
there's nothing wrong with it. And it's within the rules of the game. Obviously, we're not you know, throwing the ball instead of bowling. But those are usually the only three things that you have to pass. And the rest is absolutely open to exploration. And I find that kids nowadays like that a lot more because they sort of just get to work it out for themselves. Yeah, it's really interesting. Currently, the England cricket team are playing uh, probably this well later this morning, but they also had a series against New Zealand and I was watching one of the games and they mentioned around techniques and stuff because a few of our top order batsmen getting out relatively cheaply, but the way that they want to play. And they mentioned kind of Malinga Muraliferum in terms of maybe some environments that aren't as structured in their actual setups allow players to come up with solutions that maybe more of the structured countries wouldn't. So they were saying like, you know, maybe your Pakistans, your Sri Lankas, et cetera, where it is very much you play in a region and all of a sudden they go, oh, there's a kid here taking a load of wickets, let's get him in. It is different to what our developmental pathways are, which obviously likens to what you're saying there. I guess one one uh, challenge around that is how do you safeguard uh, individuals for what the future may hold? So obviously in your example there, where kind of going into leg side quite a lot, you're saying, yeah, that it, your coach's hat on might be, that's working really well now, but I know in the next stage, a challenge will be, you know, a leg spinner from this angle is going to cause them a lot of problem because actually they're playing against the spin, blah, 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 and that. So how do you go around safeguarding individuals in, in that space so that you're providing them with tools to have success at that next level? I think the, the key element of a coach in that sort of perspective is how many problems are they going to face while they're playing the game and how can I expose them to all of them at some point so they feel like they have the skills and capabilities to solve them. And so it becomes less about, you know, how do I score runs is obviously one of the biggest elements of batting. But it's also like, how do I play the ball in front of me? And that ball is going to be very different depending on the context you're in, even the context of the game, what's available, your batting partner, the bowler that's coming down. And so being supported in that decision-making is probably one of the hardest parts because you almost have to emulate that yourself in your head and be like, what, what is the scenario that I can make with the resources that I have as a coach to prepare you for that environment? And I find that the older that like athletes get, you can actually start to co-design the training sessions with them because they will have pitfalls in their approach that they know are not going to be useful for a long period of time. And they know that there's going to be a bowler on the weekend who they're going to have trouble with. And so once you get to a stage where you sort of know your skill set, you can absolutely identify those holes and create scenarios for them. But it's more about the kids who don't even know where the, where the gaps in their skill set is yet that you have to worry about as a coach and I find it's more about teaching them to solve problems than it is to actually like score runs or whatever the mechanics of the game are and so it's not just about like hitting the ball in a particular area can you hit the ball in every single area and so we'll play a lot of games especially with the 10 year olds who pick up a bat for the first time they will get bonus points if they can hit it to every single fielder within their little innings in a training environment than if they were to actually score a four. And so we're still encouraging them to hit that boundary, hit the ball hard, hit it past the field. But I also want you to demonstrate control. Can you learn to redirect that ball in every single possible angle, including over the keeper? And you'd be amazed how quickly they pick up a ramp shot at 10 years old. I wouldn't even have thought to just sit there and scoop the ball over my shoulder if someone told me to hit it over the keeper. I probably would have just waited for the ball to get around me and then play it through the keeper's head by accident because that's the only way I would think of a solution. And so it's about you know, how many solutions can you find to the problem? And if you sort of approach every training session like that, the hardest part is finding one specific thing to work on because there are so many things that you could possibly work on. And I find athletes are very good at telling you like, I want to work on this specific thing and you can sort of target your area around that specific thing. So we get a lot of issues. Oh yeah, you go. <laughs> no, I was just about to say, so you, you mentioned around that 
I, I like the idea of having the, you know, the holistic approach of can you do these? And I'm liking it back to football. Um, we, I used to do a practice which was trying to cross the ball in to then score. And I would say to them, you know, we've got four types of crosses. Can you, at some point in the session, your team score off all four of these crosses? And so then mm -hmm. they're practicing the different skills and we used to give it a name. So, you know, it'd be the David Beckham cross, which is a whip one, and they know, and they're trying to you know, emulate that. And I think that's a really nice tool and it resonates with them. And cricket, I imagine you could do the same. You could say, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Warner cover drive and they're trying to practice and emulate David Warner, et cetera. I guess the bit that I have um, real interest in is that, that top end, how how do you support the players that are maybe 17 18 of those age groups to rectify a specific challenge that they know that they face um i'm not sure what the australian cricket channels are like but over here we have sky sports and um kevin peterson for example yesterday um, did a long probably 45 minute segment around dealing with um I think left arm spin and what he was looking to do and how, you know, different flight of the ball affected the way he was trying to play. And that was something he notoriously had to work on. And um, I think traditionally people would have gone down the route of, you know, trying to get you 10,000 hours of that particular skill, et cetera. So from a, from, I guess, a skill acquisition point of view, what, what can individuals do if they're acutely aware that this is an area they need to improve what type of practices or what type of session design or what type of strategies can they use to try and develop in in that particular area yeah so the first place i would start is the concept of many times many ways and so the idea is that the only thing that was wrong about 10,000 hours is the way that we've de deconstructed it into sport. We think that the most simplest form done a million times is the best way to learn something when actually it's how many different ways can you practice the same outcome so that when you are faced with a different context, you can still solve that problem as you're going. So if we use the left arm spin bowlers as an example, if I had a 17, 18 year old who was quite comfortable co-designing a session with me, which comes with having a really good rapport as a coach, but also they understand your coaching approach and why you're not just telling them what to do. Um, then the first thing that we would do is actually just face an over of a left arm spinner, find one anywhere. Hopefully they're not in your team. So you're less familiar with them and just be like, or even just review footage. Nowadays, it's, it's amazing how many, you know, films there are of your own batting which I would not recommend watching and so even in that scenario as long as it is goal directed I'm looking for a specific thing maybe they go back and review the footage and say okay this is what happened in this scenario this is what I want to do differently and so that exposure first of all gets them in the right mindset to be like this is my problem and I want to find as many solutions as I can. And not all of those solutions are going to work. And that's the point. You want to be able to eliminate as many solutions as possible so that by the time you get to game day, you know exactly the ones you're looking for, or at least trying to keep in your mind as your repertoire of solutions. And you want to get rid of anything that you don't think is going to work in that scenario. And so uh, for most people, I remember when we were kids, we would always have sort of three go-to shots. I think that was the thing of the, the decade is, you know, what are your three shots that you can always play confidently that you know you're not going to get out on? And if you see the ball, you're hitting it no matter what. And so we tried to reverse that and be like, I want you to hit every single ball that this bowler throws at you. This left arm spinner is going to give you as many change-ups, as many different deliveries as they can. I want you to hit every single one of them, even if you don't know where they're going. And you sort of step it back from there. We've got a, a, a lot of solutions. A lot of them didn't work. That's fine. You pick your three best solutions and now work out which is the best ball to play one of those three solutions. So you start to narrow that focus a little bit to look for the ball that you want for the right flight, for the right dip, for the right length, even and like identify it as soon as you can. When do you know that this is your ball to hit? And they might not be able to give you an answer because that feeling of knowing which ball to hit doesn't actually have to be processed by the brain. So the fact that they can't tell you is just because it is a sensation that this is, this is the right time to do this, not because they've actively thought this is the right ball to do this. So don't feel bad if your athletes can't tell you why. I promise they are still thinking about it. 
And then we sort of go from those three different solutions and only playing those three different solutions to then facing multiple bowlers at the same time. Throw in a right arm pace bowler, throw in a, right, a left arm pace bowler and that left arm spinner and send them down in random orders. So now they're starting to filter this is the ball that I would play, or this is the way I would play the, the right arm fast bowler. This is the way I'd play the left arm face bowler. The spinner comes on. I know what my three solutions are. I'm going to work on those. And your ability to sort of retrieve that one buried under all of this other information is the difference between getting out in the first over when that bowler comes on and sort of looking forward to that first over when you're like, I know exactly what to do. I feel fine. I've got this. I have at least a few solutions that I know will work. And it, and you just sort of switch between those different scenarios until they get to a point where they have found sort of solid movement patterns that they're very comfortable with, but also feel like they can exploit that bowler rather than start that over with fear and be like, I don't really know how I'm going to play this. And that's when you know, like when that bowler comes on, you're like, yes, I know exactly what to do to you. That's when you know that they've found their movement solutions. Uh, what I really like about that strategy as well is it does probably at the start of the intervention, if you want to call it that, um, allow them a lot of exposure to it. Because um, some of the conversations that I hear is around, um, oh no, just drop it in and out that you were saying afterwards with the right arm fast bowler. But what I really like about that is it's actually you can be purposeful to begin with and we can say actually we're going to we're going to be really purposeful in this for how many period of time we need to be and then once you become more skilled with it then we're going to start dropping it in and out and i think that sometimes that's the bit that maybe some practitioners miss and there's an assumption that purely by going and making it chaotic you're going to see improvements but i think that's a really nice blended approach of what is probably deemed more traditional in terms of you know, we're going to just focus purely on this, 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 and we're going to get 10,000 balls. That means you're going to be able to complete it compared to now where actually, no, we're going to spend a bit of time specifically on this task, but we're mm -hmm. now going to make it more chaotic and more challenging by adding different bowlers in who can do different things. And it allows you to dip and dive and not neglect other areas of your game as well. Yeah, I do think it's it's a very easy thing to misconstrue this idea of like you need like as many things as you can that are identical to get better at something is the it doesn't mean that that load isn't good for you it's just the fact that we're so limited in our scope as to like you are only allowed to play a cover drive for the next ten thousand balls or you're only allowed to face a left arm bowler you're gonna face what 20 overs at best maybe within a season if not a lifetime i can count on one hand how many left arm spin bowlers i've faced in my career and so to actually like disproportionately throw that into a training session i think is very unfair on the athlete because now you're telling them this, this really important thing that they have to solve and it's, it's almost life or death or whether they're not like you know get picked on the weekend because it feels so important when really they'll maybe face five overs if they're lucky if they have a good innings they'll face five overs total but even better if they face five overs of the left arm spinner that they were worried about and so i think it's very important to actually put things back into context like this is only just one problem and like a few solutions of the entire capability that you have within your entire skill set and if you don't work that out immediately that's perfectly fine but don't shy away from that don't think it's something that you can't eventually solve for yourself or don't just sit there and pick up the first thing that you see somebody else doing without critically thinking whether or not that suits you. Because I have to start every new season, especially with new athletes, to be like, I will demonstrate things only if you are really struggling to picture what this looks like or I'm worried you're going to hurt yourself. And uh, those are the only circumstances where I will say, here is an example, here is me. Because I do not coach other 25-year-old girls who have played cricket for 20 years. And because they're pretty rare. And so for a lot of the times, they're much younger than me and see the game very differently. So I don't want to impose my version of what I think the solution is on them. So I just don't show them. I let the training task show themselves. And if they're really worried, I'll maybe partner them up with someone who actually does it really well and they can bounce off each other. But I'm no content expert. I'm not the person whose biomechanical technique you should be copying. If anything, as a 165 centimeter fast bowler, it's not probably the best biomechanical approach to fast bowling that there ever was. So I would not recommend in the first place. 
But that doesn't mean you can't watch and be like, I'm going to try something like that. And that's the stage that we want to get athletes to because how many times, even when you were growing up, were you told just to explore something for the sake of it? Just just try it and see how it goes. Like you never really hear that from a coach. It's more something that you do by yourself in a safe environment, probably without other people just in case it goes wrong. And, and I kind of want people to feel safe to do that in a team environment and that the teammates pick them up because they're trying something new and different. And that, that's the only way that you're going to find a different movement solution that works for you. If you go through and find all the different variations that don't work and then settle on the one that you like the most or is the most successful for you. Perfect. So listen, we've come to the kind of time we allotted for, for this. So just um, one last question, which is something I ask everyone, who is the, the best uh, player or coach you've worked with or against in this space and why? Ooh, um, I would say the best athlete that I have worked with, I coached a second 11 school team, which was very controversial to be a female and an all boys Catholic school coaching a second 11 team. And he really, really wanted to make that first 11 team, but didn't know why he wasn't picked in the first place. And so it was a big struggle for him to learn something new. He just thought he had to get better with the skill set that he had. And that was the only way to get in the first 11. And he eventually realized that my approach to coaching is very different compared to the first 11 coach. And he embraced it wholeheartedly. And if anything, he got everybody else on the team to embrace it and then went back to the first 11 boys and said, hey, come try this. It's really fun. And so I think for the first time, he actually enjoyed training for cricket. But it also showed me how important it is to just get one player fully on board. And that's the big difference with a different approach to most coaches. As long as one player absolutely loves it, they will bring everybody else with them. And it was one of my highlights as a coach to see that person struggle in every training session and embrace that struggle to be like, no, batting is my weak point. Can I please bat for 30 minutes and throw every challenge you have at me? Every version, every different bowler, hell, get the fastest bowler in the first 11 and just get them to bowl me until I work out how to keep that ball out. And we came up with so many amazing co-designed games based on that, which really got everyone else involved. And the day that he played his last game for school cricket, he scored 100 and he just ran over and said, thank you, that was you. And I've never really thought that that would be a moment that I would have as a coach because most people see it as like a fun training session and then sort of move on beyond the grades and never see me again. But that moment has definitely stuck with me because to embrace it like that and then to go out not eventually play in that first 11 team like he wanted, but to go ahead and score 100 for himself because he knew he could do it. That's probably one of the best moments I've had as a coach and one of the best athletes that I've ever had. Perfect. Yeah, there's a lot of conversations around, you know, if you can get someone on board or I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan, Tim Duncan was a massive cultural architect and being the best player and being able to you know, rely on him so you could challenge that one. And then the rest of the group are like, mm. well, if he's being challenged, I probably should be as well. It's a really positive space to be in. But listen, really fascinating cricket uh, conversation about cricket and culture and environments, etc. And um, hopefully we can catch up again soon. Would love that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.